Welcome to Christchurch Manchester Sermon Podcast. CCM is one church that meets every Sunday in various locations across Manchester. For more information about who we are or about our Sunday meetings, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. If this is your first time with us, we've been looking through James the past few weeks about practical faith and what that means for us as Christians, as followers of Jesus. And today we're in chapter 4, which is about humility. So to begin, let's read James chapter 4, verses 4 to 17, and the words will be up on the screen as we go along. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enemy with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? But God gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Do not speak evil of one another, brethren. He who speaks evil of a brother or sister and judges them speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you to judge another? Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such a place, a city, spend a year there, buy and sell, and make a profit. Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapour that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is a sin. So, back to our passage, and we find that James is writing to Jesus' followers who are now scattered out across the empire. There's been persecution in Jerusalem, and they've spread out. And they're going to find themselves in different places, in different cities, in challenging circumstances to keep going and following Jesus. They're going to be seeing different things, interacting with different people, the community that kept them together is now broken up and they've, they've now not got each other as they did have. And James draws a lot of his inspiration from Proverbs. And he's now providing wisdom of what the Christian life looks like outside of this central Jerusalem-based community. And so James has led us through how our speech, our works and our wisdom are all important. And this week we're looking at humility and what humility and humbleness means. So if you look at a dictionary, it comes up with many definitions, including the quality of having a modest view of our own importance, freedom from pride or arrogance. If you, if you want to be more modern, which I did, I used Bard, which is a Google AI chat bot, and it gave me 14 words within three seconds of what humility looks like, where it's like modest and kind and compassionate, but mixed in with self-deprecating, unassertive and submissive. We can, on the screen, we'll have 
two cartoons where we sometimes see what humility and its opposite pride look like. We may hear legendary stories of, like this one, of a US warship. It's out in the fog and the, and the storms. And it sees a light, there's a lighthouse up ahead. And the warship saying, get out of my way, turn around, move out the way. And the lighthouse, uh, the lighthouse keeper goes, well, we're a lighthouse, do as you wish. <laughs> the perspective that the officers had on the ship with their equipment and their guns and their position meant that their perception of what the reality was was very different to where they actually were. There's also, we may think of the fairy tale, the emperor in his new clothes. The emperor was so wrapped up, the emperor was tucked in by his position and in his pride and, he, and taken in by the quick-talking tailors, he paraded through the city, not dressed as an emperor should be for walking through the city. He, yeah, he still thought he was the best dressed because he was the emperor after all. But a small child comes and says to him, Emperor, you're not wearing any clothes. The emperor's lack of humility based on his position again led him to have an incorrect view of himself and everything around him. So knowing what reality is outside of our world is important. Thinking rightly and understanding the truth about ourselves is huge for our mental and physical health, but import more importantly too, having the right thinking about ourselves before God is crucial for receiving him, knowing him, and growing with him. And from the passage this morning, there's three points I want to bring out. And these are, humbly receive grace, humbly draw near to God, and humbly plan the future. James starts us out with humbly receive grace, and in verse 6, he says, this is why the scriptures say God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Verse 4 opens with a bombshell. He starts with you adulterous people, and it's, it's a really strong scold, and we think it sounds more like the Old Testament man of prophets, and and um, Jose and Haggai and them guys, and it doesn't sound very New Testament to many of us. But James is linking in from verses 1 to 3 of chapter 4 about why fighting and wars occur, why we don't get what we ask for. It's our pride that's getting in the way. James lifts it from Proverbs chapter 3 because so much of what we want is for us. It's for our pleasures, it's for our consumption, it's for our enjoyment. If we go right back to Eden in the garden, pride is what lies behind the very first sin. When Satan creeps in and convinces Adam and Eve that the one thing God withheld was more important than all the abundance God had provided, then we stole for ourselves the glory that belongs to God alone. We took what God had said was out of reach. We believed we could see correctly and choose rightly. We made ourselves at that point the ultimate judge of what was right and what was wrong. We wanted more. We wanted everything. Even what we don't deserve, we want. And, yet, and so we can come to God demanding his grace. We can come expecting because we've done something right or we've said a prayer or we've been in church for so many years, we deserve grace. We deserve it now. We feel like we're entitled God says, I give grace to the humble. 
And so what do we mean by grace? It's often described in its best way as God's undeserved favour. There's nothing we can do to earn grace. It's offered and given to us because of what Jesus did for us in offering himself. And so where we've gone and left God, we've walked away, which has brought about all the trauma, the suffering, the abuse, the war that we see, and the whole list goes on and on and on. And then we come with our offerings. And in times past, they came with offerings to God to try and reconcile themselves with God. Their offerings were never good enough. Yet, many brought them thinking it would make them good enough. But Jesus comes and he offers the perfect sacrifice that was needed. Therefore, where we view ourselves as being the ones who have achieved it, it's not us, it's Jesus. Proud people think they have it all sorted. They can do it their own way, solve all their own problems. It means we can offer what we want, have our own rules and regulations, and we can judge what's right and wrong. We can build paradise our own way. And yet, and then as C.S. Lewis said, and no sermon's complete with that C.S. Lewis quote, he says, a proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see that which is above you. To receive grace as God requires is then to know ourselves. It's to have a right understanding of who we are, to see ourselves correctly. And we can often think of pride as being this really outward boastful position. Look at me, look at what I've achieved, look at, look at my car, look at my house, look at how much money's in my bank account. But there's another side to pride that we often neglect. It's the side that I'm, as I wrote this, that convicted me so much as I wrote it, is that we have a false pride. And the reason I mentioned self-deprecating at the start is that we have a sense of pride that can be so self-deprecating that I'm never good enough. I'm, I'm utterly useless. I'm dreadful. I'm like this forever. I can't change. Look what's happened to me. Look at what I've done. That's, a, that's, a, that's an idea of pride, which is a negative pride, where they both prevent us from receiving grace because both of them are not an accurate view of who we are. We're humbly called to receive grace. Negative pride and positive pride in that sense both block us from receiving grace. We both think that was something that God does not think we are. And then that leads us into point two. Humbly draw near to God. Verses seven and eight state, Therefore submit to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. These first two points I think are really inseparable as, as concepts. And they should become a cycle as we go through life. One leads to the other and back to the other. We come to God for grace, humbly receiving grace, which then leads us to draw near to God. And as we draw near to God, we then humbly come back and ask for more grace. It's this wonderful cycle that we keep coming back to the one who gives grace to us. Yes, we can come to God and humbly receive grace at one point in time. But then unless we stay near to God, then what James has been talking about, about the worldliness in the previous chapters, then starts to seep back in. If the goal James has in mind is of believers being cleansed and purified, which he talks about at the end of verse 8, then, the only closeness, then only closeness and continual fellowship with God can achieve that. The nearness to God 
will show us our true condition. Is oh, sorry, will show us what our true condition is and cause us to come looking for cleansing and purifying. That comes not from inwardly, not from ourselves, but from the work of Jesus. So for the presence and guiding of the word and the spirit, we understand our identity and know that we have a good God who wants to build us up, to heal the brokenhearted, to heal the hurt and oppressed. To those who are mighty to bring them down, we know that it says to bring down the mighty from their seat and the song and exalt the humble and meek. He does want us to stand firm against the devil, that is in there. But notice how the devil is sandwiched between submit to God and draw near to God. Our resistance is Christ-focused. It should be, that should be where we look. It's not shouting at demons. It's not calling them out by name and, and other things that, 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 that have been added since. The emphasis is therefore not on the devil, but on God. The devil does attack us with accusations and temptations. And we must stand against that, otherwise he does get a foothold and sows confusion and doubt. But as we stay near God, we are encouraged to know God with us. This drawing near to God is again through God's gift to us through Jesus. We cannot come on our own terms, write in our own law to include or exclude, but through Christ, our great high priest who is forever praying for us and receiving the prayers of the saints. J.C. Ryle, the first bishop of Liverpool, once said this. God knows what we were before conversion, wicked, guilty, and defiled. Yet he loved us. He knows what we will be like after conversion. Weak, prone to error, and frail. Yeah, he loves us. So as, so as with so much, sorry everyone, as with so much of God's kingdom, it's upside down. Our logic goes out the window. What we think is strength is actually weak. God will lift us up when we humble ourselves, when we forget our ways and follow his ways. And James gives us two ways that we can do that here. He tells us to humbly lament in verses 9 and 10. James is telling us that tears and crying are part of our of developing our relationship with God. As we understand ourselves and the world around us, the things that grieve God, our own sin and suffering and injustice in the world should lead us to godly lament. Now, lament is a pouring out often with no idea of the answer, but, but crying out to God saying, God, help us. And we spoke about this, if you're with us, in the summer when we went through the Psalms, and it's a good and right response as people of God to God. Yet James is not saying all laughter is bad. He's dealing with whether we are friends with God or friends of the world. So what he's going to hear is like this worldly laughter, the one that dishonors people, it dishonors God. It belittles others, makes light of events that happen. We, we, we think about the, the, in, in football, the, there's chants in football about disasters that have happened and people laughing about things. Like that. that's, that's where James is going with some of this. It's this laughter that is not God-honouring. In God's kingdom, we should see that laughter stop and repentance and tears 
replacing it. It's humility knowing that we should not laugh in the same way the world does. And because laughter and joy are throughout scripture, and that's not to be ignored, otherwise we end up with a joyless existence. Rather, we relearn what laughter and joy should be. And just this last week as I wrote this, we were, I was in work and everyone was laughing at jokes and I just felt God saying to me, this is what I made you write, this is what you were writing last night. And now you're in work the next day and you're laughing about something that isn't, that isn't, that isn't right. Number two on this point of application is humble obedience. Do not speak evil of one another. Those who speak evil and judge each other, speak evil of the law and judge the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and destroy. Who are you to judge another? Here, James has shown us that we are all under the same conditions of the law. Yet we know that from Paul's letters that the law cannot save us. When we hold ourselves up to the law, we see that we fall short. And therefore, we need the grace of God. We also know that from the Lord, Jesus takes the law and explains that murder is not merely ending of life, it is hating another. So there was what the spirit of the intent was behind the law that was given. The law is therefore a sign of grace from God for how our life should be lived for his pleasure. Only after we come to God through the work of Jesus, because the law doesn't save. Further in this section, calling a brother or sister evil is condemning and damning them. When we've picked bits of the law as like a potluck on the law to say, this is, what, this is the bits of the law that I mean that you're in and you're out, which is what you seem to be getting at here about, about judging the law, about then we become the lawgiver. So we've chosen, these are our rules. Then we've actually put ourselves again in that place that we shouldn't be. We've thought of ourselves more than who we are. God is judge. We are to live in the light of that. I mean, we know from years of all those people who were found guilty of ca- and taken for capital punishment, and then we found out that actually they were innocent. Human justice, human perception, human evidence is faulty. God is the ultimate lawgiver. God is the one who judges everyone according to his standards. But yet this is not a proof text to use against church discipline. We are still to correct. We are still, because we want to see restoration, humility, and closeness with with God. It's to truly measure ourselves and and see our own issues as bigger than those of our brothers and sisters around us. And if we do that, if we take ourselves first before we look at others, then we might see a more glorious expression of joy in the church as we humbly come in obedience and in lamentation. So from these two things, from the call of, to humbly walk with God, to humbly come and ask for grace. There's a really practical way we can see this. And that is in humbly plan the future. Now, I'm a planner. 
by in my job. I'm always looking at the next month, the next six months for forecasts, so on and so forth. So planning, then it really, it does hit home. We can, here we see what, what James says in verse 13 of, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a place, spend a year there, buy and sell and make profit. Do you know what's going to happen tomorrow? And we can look back at recent history ourselves and say, do we know what's going to happen tomorrow? Do we think we have control over our lives, ultimately? I mean, as we ended 2019 and we're entering 2020, many of us had great plans for, for 2020. And yet, by March, April, we felt powerless by a tiny virus. We think back, sadly, to 2022, just last year, last February, lives for millions of Ukrainians and Russians were turned upside down. They had plans. They were turned upside down. And even now, this last month, last couple of weeks, for the hundreds of thousands of Palestinians and Israelis, their lives have been turned upside down. And still, we make plans. We move towards our plans. We can start idolising our plans and boasting in them that we prosper because of our plans. Look at what I've done. I've got to this point. Uh, this has been my trajectory. I mean, from my own experience way back in 2009, I had a really good job at the time. I was earning really good money. Just found out Ruth was pregnant with Caleb. And I thought I was doing well and I was secure and comfortable. We'd not long bought our house. We were, I was after better paid jobs, always looking around for more. I wanted the increase and I was planning, but that was based on my ambitions. And then in a very short period of time, I was maybe redundant twice. And then with no job and very little money coming in, we were, I was starting to think, how am I gonna do this? Where am I? And then one day we had, we had someone give us some money as a check through the door and it paid our mortgage for the month. And that broke me down. As I pick this up, I open this envelope, and I've got the envelope in this hand and the check in this hand, and I'm trembling and crying before God because in that point, I got bro God broke me of this, this pride that I had in because I had a good job and I had this money and, I, and this is where, where I was going, that I'd somehow made it, that my identity become my job. I would tell people... The first thing I led with was about my job. And... That's where I'd found my security. That's where I'd done, that was what my, what my plans were based on. And yet it took some correction. God used the redundancies and the fact that I was about to become a dad as a way to take away this, this desire and inclination that everything was based on the future and on guaranteeing profit. So I'd forgotten the correct view of placing it all under God. It's not, yeah, it's not saying that the phrase, if the Lord wills, becomes sort of like a magic phrase, like this is our abracadabra moment that unlocks everything for us. We, as long as we say that if the Lord wills, then everything's going to be all right. That's about having the humility and recognizing that we can't control much and that it's all dependent on the maker of heaven and earth. But what we can do is draw near to God and he draws near to us. And so... Our plans are good, and we need plans in life. And we're not saying plans are wrong, but we need to probe what's behind our plans, what's the intention behind them. So as we make plans, as we make plans individually, 
as families and as a church, as church together, we need to humble ourselves before God and say, are we seeing things correctly? Are we humble enough to change our plans, to ripping them up and starting again? Are we humble enough when we hold our plans up to the way of Jesus to know that they may not be best for us? Do we look at what we have and do we thank God for it? Or are we still boasting in our education, in our jobs, in our marriage, in our connections? Ultimately, when we talk about profit and growth and gain, it will all fail in the end. And what we have left is our Christ-likeness, our walk with Jesus. Are we humble enough to acknowledge we need God? As we land, I want to ask, why does humility matter? And the answer is simply Jesus. He stepped down into time. He removed himself from heaven. He laid aside all these divine privileges and he humbled himself so that we can have life. So for Christ to shine more fully and gloriously, we need to follow his example. We need to humble ourselves and allow God to show us who we are and what he wants us to do. To have our plans changed, to have our mindsets changed. Perhaps this morning we have come, come and we need to confess that we have been too proud of ourselves. We've been too set in our ways, our position, our wealth. Perhaps we think we are a better moral person than others and we're missing our own blind spots. Or maybe our confession is that we have thought too little of ourselves. We can't change. We can't be changed. That God can't do anything with me. Perhaps that's where we are this morning. We, are, we have closed off our ability to see rightly because we have been hurt. We have hurt others. We've tried and we've failed in the past. There's nothing left for me now. I'm, that, there's no humility in that. Our confession should be, God, forgive us when we don't see ourselves as you see us. Bring your correction to our lives. And God then comes and gives more grace. As James tells us, draw near. In our time of response, there may be those of us who need to come back and experience grace again. We need to repent and receive to be open to the Spirit showing us what must go or what we must add for us to be nearer to Jesus. Maybe you need to lament this morning. There's personal circumstances, there's national and international news, that all feels too much. Humility is coming and pouring it all out before the perfect Father. Because we know Jesus cried before at the tomb of his friend Lazarus and he weeps over Jerusalem and he knows how it feels to weep and to cry, and he wants to hear his people bringing everything to him. And perhaps you're here and you've never known God's grace. But this offer of God's grace is open to all. If we come to him by the way of Jesus. And this morning I was just struck by, again, by the words on the, on the wall. As I was sat at the back just waiting to preach. 
And as before we started, and come and rest in the untold rhythms of grace. Learn them, rest in them, let them wash over us. Because Jesus' yoke is easy. He doesn't add unnecessarily. He takes away our burdens and wants to come and fill us with his love and his joy and his forgiveness. Let's take time to rest and listen to God's call for greater humility. Rest and receive. Repent and be renewed.